0: welcome to Eastern Border and Business Basics. We are here in Kiev, in Goldabar, just arrived after a long ride, and we're meeting here with Mark from um, Frontier Management? Frontier, Frontier, view. Frontier View, sorry. This is the third take of this. Uh, it's been a bit tiring. But Mark's here
1: and doing some business and doing interesting analytics, which I think you might find interesting. So Mark, why are you here? What do you do here? So I'm here be on a research trip. So I'm the managing director for Frontier View, which is a global macroeconomic political risk consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. I work out of the London office, which covers Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, As managing director of Europe, my responsibility is sort of everything across Europe, obviously, but uh, my main focus has been Russia, CIS markets, Russia, Ukraine, and and the whole region. It's my academic background, my professional background, last about 20 years now of my life. And I'm here uh, basically doing a couple of things, but doing research uh, on the ground, meeting with clients, uh, economists, journalists, officials, et cetera, to to get a better feel for the investment environment. And obviously, as part of that, understanding the outlook for the war, you know, outlook for the end of the war, potentially uh, what you know security guarantees look like, reconstruction, money, rebuilding the country, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to get a better feel for that. I was actually here uh, in May, so just about two months ago, was here for about 10 days doing research. And I've come back, and actually in the interim, I have decided to actually start a new business here. So I'll be starting a new business with my friend and new business partner, uh, Andrew Prima of Ukraine Business News. And we're launching what's going to be called Ukraine Business Network. So I'll be moving here uh, in October and leaving my current job and uh, likely doing some contract work and things like that. But then starting this business here obviously with the the vision of attracting foreign investment to help the country absolutely rebuild and reconstruct following the war
0: yeah following the war that's the thing you are here very early so I would say what does it make you think how long will it take for the war to end so that investment will start coming here and how the rebuilding process is going to look like you're the person that does financial analysis you're probably sitting on, on the on the bleeding edge of these things what makes you optimistic enough to be here at this time at looking at these prospects and starting a new business here
1: Right. right, I will keep this uh, answer to less than three hours. Uh, But uh, in short, because I do fundamentally believe Ukraine is going to win, the Western world will politically, uh, if not at a humanitarian level, feel compelled to not only continue to support Ukraine to win, uh, stand up for the Western order, of course, but then also help the country uh, revive, rebuild, reconstruct back after the war. I don't believe the war is sustainable for the long term for Russia, actually, more at a political level, sort of for this war of attrition. I think we saw that with the Prigozhin mutiny, of course. And at the end of the day, and and you'll get a feel for this, you know, talking to people on the ground here, Ukrainians are fighting really for their existence, their country's existence and for the future. And I mean, I, I just heard a story yesterday from a client, how numerous young men actually, that she knew of personally, came back from Poland, because they said, we have no future outside of Ukraine. This is our country. We need to fight for the existence of this country. You obviously don't have that level of, of morale and determination for the long term, necessarily from the Russian side. So I, that's one of numerous reasons why I, I tend to, to believe, in short, and we can get into the details of it, that Ukraine will fundamentally win the war, right? We can define what winning actually means and looks like, but I've changed my view to believe that Ukraine can win the war, likely to win the war by the end of next year. Uh, I did not necessarily actually believe this until about May, June, just in the last couple of months here, which is when I got confident then to, of course, start building this company. And I think also part of that, likely even before Ukraine more or less wins the war, uh, whatever victory exactly looks like, I also tend to believe that Putin will be pushed out of power in that time period as well. So point being, that will then allow for the investment environment to open up more clearly for the country. And so I'm coming here now, basically get in early. Uh, get in to help bring that money uh, over time and, and be sort of the first mover in this market that I think has a lot of potential.
0: What do you think is going to happen to Putin? Because my likely scenario is that I see Russia somewhat dissolving into its internal structure because it's kind of, in my point, it's the world's last colonial empire, in a way, just like British Empire was. But a lot of people think there's going to be a successor, but what's going to happen to Putin? Oh, uh, That's a complex question, but each of us seems to have our own answers. What's yours? What do you think is going to happen to put it
1: so I, th- I think there's a, a short-term answer and a longer term answer uh the some of the stuff you're talking about are, are a little bit more longer term right collapse of the states and and potential disintegration What i tend to think uh, this has all changed uh, evolving fastly quickly after the the pregosian mutiny right basically i think he is going to be removed from power over time now that there's several methods that can happen <laughs> under uh right i actually tend to think it'll be less likely a sort of a violent solution against him. I tend to think, actually, there's, and there's somewhat of a historical precedent for this, he may just be sort of sidelined over time. And I think there's actually a relevant analogy here with the ouster of Gorbachev in 91. I think there's some interesting historical parallels here. If you look at, for example, starting in in 1991, the August coup, ultimately, Gorbachev got blamed for the very coup that came against him, right? He got blamed for having put in place those very individuals who then, you know, tried to remove him from power. So afterwards, he then became sort of sidelined, made irrelevant. He, he wasn't making decisions, he was being informed of decisions afterwards. And I think that's similar to what is going to begin to happen now, right? Putin has had this sort of veil of invincibility, you know, just preeminent above the entire system, this ultimate arbiter, this consolidator of power, the one who decided which faction won which fight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now that he's lost that role, he's lost that that mystique above all the system. That is one of his pillars of power that it's critical that he's lost that. And so now we're starting to see, and I think this is gonna accelerate dramatically, different individuals, different power structures, different factions making their own decisions, right? Taking power in their own hands. When they get difficult orders to implement in the past, they maybe would have done that knowing, well, Putin will remain in power for the long term, and I will benefit by, of course, being rewarded financially very well. Well, now those financial rewards aren't quite coming, right? And they're not going to be able to come in the future. That's one of many reasons they will then, now that they've also seen Putin been exposed as being vulnerable and weak, start to maybe disregard some of these orders or take power into their own hands, take decisions in their own hands. And so I kind of see over time, the critical point here being over time with further Ukrainian victories on the battlefield, this further undermining his authority. uh, And then he sort of gets sort of more or less sidelined and marginalized and sort of pushed out of power. And then as far as successors, I mean, sure, we could throw out one name after another. I don't think they have a a good idea within the Kremlin itself. And I think ultimately I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it's not a base case expectation that someone who's currently relatively unknown would intentionally be put in the position of power precisely because they don't have that existing massive power faction underneath them. And they would be more or less controllable by sort of a a coterie of Russian leaders, which, looking at Russian history, as you know, uh, this is how Russia has been sort of ruled for for centuries. So I think we would move more into that dynamic in the short term, right? So that's sort of how, and and by the way, that does entail, uh, under my view, some level of stability within the system. These guys, they don't want to lose their wealth, their status, their influence that they've gained over the last two, three, some of these guys three plus decades they don't want to lose that of course but they would like to remove Putin over time so the combination of those factors will actually allow them to sort of maybe continue this Putinist system but without Putin at the helm
0: and, and what do you think is gonna to happen to Ukraine you're here doing rebuilding stuff how much money do you think Ukraine will need after this war to rebuild and reach some level of prosperity It's a long shot of course but give us a ballpark figure and how do you think business is gonna function in Eastern Europe because I'm pretty sure that this rebuilding thing is going to make some people well extremely wealthy especially construction companies so
1: yes so uh, i mean look world bank has estimated uh, several months ago it's over 400 billion dollars obviously that's a couple multiples of ukraine's entire gdp uh so obviously massive and that's to date right by the end of this year estimates range from you know doubling that approaching one trillion dollars to put a, a nice round figure on it i think we should be expecting somewhere in the vicinity of about a trillion dollars in total now that's covering absolutely all things and everything over the next you know, say through 2028, 20, 20, 2030. But the big issue here is more whether it's at one point two trillion or it's eight hundred and fifteen billion massive amounts of money, how do you actually fund this mm-hmm. reconstruction, right? Absolutely critical this, and, and this needs to be discussed far more, uh, and and EU in particular has to get more serious about this, is using in some form russia's fx reserves that are currently under sanction that have been frozen right the u.s seems a little bit more aggressive about this uh there's a lot of discussion pushing towards this but nothing real concrete the problem is if that money doesn't come you're not going to get the private money right you're not going to get all of the private investors to come back so you need to get as a sort of a foundation for the reconstruction some part at least of russia's FX reserves add to that, then, of course, money coming from World Bank, different multilateral organizations, and then the private money can can start adding in on top of that. And of course, we're talking over the course of, say, the rest of this decade. So a lot of money required, a lot of needs here. How do you get access to the FX reserves? They're trying to find legal avenues. Do they declare Russia a terrorist state at some point, depending upon what they may do in the future? Uh, So that's one potential avenue, of course, or alternatively, maybe in some sort of ceasefire peace settlement, maybe in a post-Putin era, some faction of Russian leaders come to some sort of agreement to help fund the reconstruction using those reserves. So it's difficult to say right now, but without that money, reconstruction is going to be, will be tough.
0: How do you, the whole business environment here in Ukraine, are things still sovieti or are they moving in the western direction because for me i'm from latvia myself and i've seen a lot of this transition happen in our own country as we join the eu and everything and there are a lot of things that need to go out a lot of things need to come in business culture changes one of the greatest challenges that ukrainians themselves face that maybe they they haven't grasped that's going to change and the business culture in ukraine and to the west it's not an economist here hard to form this question, but you probably understand what I'm, what I'm trying to go to. Uh, I, I see
1: what you're getting at. I mean, one thing, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, I mean, on the positive side, right? I was just reading an article this morning about how basically <laughs> Ukraine is better digitized than Germany.
0: This, by the way, uh, we noticed this because we have a German driver here uh, who's doing this and he also noticed that the Ukraine is better digitized than Germany. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's maybe better digitized than living in London. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable here. And, and it's just commonplace amongst, you know, people under 50 years old. This is just a part of their lives and they're accustomed to it. And they, you know, they've adapted quickly to it all. So one thing in the digital realm, I mean, massive uh, improvements, opportunities. Look, on the business side of things, obviously, it's it, the constant talk in the West, unfortunately, uh, is related to corruption, right? Lack of rule of law, etc. Every single client, every, all the economists, the, every analyst I've spoken to, the officials, this comes up over and over and over again. Why and, and when would Western investors come pouring money back in here if they think it's gonna to go to some guy's bank account in Switzerland or, or elsewhere, right? So that's a massive problem. There's been unanimous agreement, though, and I'm, t- I'm talking about executives, 65-year-old executives who've seen it all from the Soviet period, the 90s, to today, to young executives uh, you know, in their early 30s this consensus that it'll take time, but it is inevitable. It has to happen. This business culture, the economic culture of the country is going to evolve and rapidly and obviously accelerated by the war itself. I would add to that a second point. There's gonna be significant political pressure because particularly after the war, you're gonna have a completely new and dynamic political environment here. You're gonna have new political parties. You're gonna have a lot of returning veterans from the front lines. And these guys aren't going to they're not going to put up with it. They're going to say, I, I didn't watch my friends die or get wounded or lose an arm on the front lines so we could keep enriching these oligarchs for another 20 years, for another generation. And have my kids live in the same country that I grew up in and that my parents lived through. Uh, so there's gonna be enormous enormous pressure and then i think another sort of more subtle uh cultural element and then um, you see this in latvia too i mean you see this throughout central europe they had these questions of course 25 years ago throughout central european countries now of course they've made advances but granted some of the countries in southeastern europe in particular without naming names do continue to struggle with the you know the rule of law environment etc but for this new generation you know under say 45 years old 40 years old there's just more of an expectation of living more like europeans and not putting up with this entrenched corruption that exists here obviously in ukraine obviously in russia and you know to an extent in these central european countries but it's evolving just from a cultural point of view already i think in ukraine it's going to be accelerated dramatically as a result of of the war it'll take but it'll also take time that's the unanimous opinion by business executives it'll continue to improve but it'll take time
0: yeah i want to talk about russia a bit more and and the things that Dear listeners, we get contacted sometimes by these companies who contact both of us and it's just a bit of a mess. I know one of the things that I wanted to know is like, about Russia's own perspectives because a lot of people currently in Russia, economists speaking, uh, I recently looked at their own statistics because I read a lot about Russian market because economy is a huge part of what I do in my show. And they have this uh, credit load of about 80% for each household. So that means that 80% of their income for about 20% of families is just spent on on paying loans so they also want to look for help and there's this African congress happening in Russia right now they're also dealing with China and India a lot of people think it's only the West pressuring Russia on and that China's going to come and save them and that now this African congress or something the global south unity the BRICS summit what is the chances of Russia you know pulling out of these sanctions and because these economical issues you know wars are won by logistics therefore we need to put the squeeze on that for what do you think is going to happen there?
1: Uh, So looking at the economy, no, China is not going to save Russia. They have no intention to. China will do what's in their benefit, their best interests. And that's that's the extent of it. Africa is incapable of saving Russia, but a nice ally periodically to have maybe for votes in the U.N. and different things like that on the economic side. Look, Russia was resilient to the sanctions for effectively one reason, two reasons. I'll say two reasons and two reasons only very strong technocratic leaders within the central bank and the Ministry of Finance who help manage this extremely volatile process. Which,
0: by the way, the Russians that I follow to the opposition, they think they're liberal agents from Western Europe and they want to get
1: removed as soon as possible. Uh, <laughs> I won't comment on that. <laughs> no, no,
0: but that's kind of funny, because, you know... Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, they're the ones who saved this economy. I mean, this would have this would have happened if uh, Patrushev had put in the people he'd want to put in and it wouldn't have quite functioned this way. So they should be thinking they're lucky stars that they have the right people in place. Uh, So that's and then secondly, the fact that almost miraculously, Russia was able to retransit all of that oil, which the vast majority of their oil used to be sold to the West, primarily to Europe. Right. Transit all of those volumes, they were given massive lead time because you <laughs> the eu basically gave them a six month notice period uh, basically able to transfer all those volumes to china and india very specifically that's what saved this economy period oil prices are still if you look at the 10-year period quite high right they're not as high as 15 years ago but quite high over this 10-year period and then Russia is able to get those volumes all the way and i mean we spoke with energy analysts last year all of them unanimously said uh it seems almost impossible russia can get that amount of oil redirected in the shorter period of time they managed to do it sort of by hook or crook and there's a lot of details there but they I, did it and that's what saved the economy
0: I know that they gave like a massive I don't know a 30% discount from the oil price
1: to Indians at least for some time that actually that has narrowed right Brent Prices have come down, the, the price they've been selling to China and India has been substantially lower than that, but is that has actually creeped up a bit. So the discount isn't quite as much, but it, there still is a, a notable discount. That said, with the volumes they're selling, they're able to keep things more or less afloat. So that's been absolutely critical. Gas exports, it'll take them years to reroute gas, They have to build new pipeline infrastructure to, to the east, etc. But that's not, that's a minority of their energy export revenue. So it's, its the story's about oil, oils would save them. The other sanctions are impactful, but it, actually another problem is that very impactful sanctions were the, on chips, semiconductors and everything, which have now been rerouted through China primarily. And Russia's actually importing the same amount of chips that they were before the war. So that actually, that long-term sort of devastation of the, this new economic era, this new economy, that actually may not exactly happen here in the in the near term. But in any case, that's, that's sort of the economic story. That's how they've been saved, more or less. What should I get to next?
2: Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Eastern Border, Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military, Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online.
0: I watch Russian economists as well Like Dmitry Potapenko Really respected guy And he constantly states that What's going to destroy Russian's economy Is their attitude to small and small medium businesses And their tax policies and all that That's basically their own corruption Like they'll reroute things than the chips But the rerouting is slow It's more expensive They could do it And a lot of money gets stolen So just just, just give me a comment Because you know Chips
1: go to the defense sector now they're not going to the real economy, right? I mean, this is this is the point. Yeah,
0: there's that's also the thing. Like they're, they're, uh, look, if you look at the numbers there in the recent economy, then, yeah, building rockets kind of boosts up your GDP for a short while, but what else are you going to do with the rockets? You shoot them out, and they don't produce anything else. It's not like producing a combine or something. Right.
1: there's no second, third order effects. Right. Look, the economy is in, is in a lot of trouble. I mean, you, have the, you already have the mobilization. You're having this more creeping mobilization. It, politically, it's risky, but it, they're gonna do some form of mobilization, maybe public, maybe formal, maybe less formal, but they changed laws recently to try to bring more men into the military. This is causing major labor market disruptions. So you're seeing, Central Bank has already said that this is the worst labor market since the 1990s. Nearly three vacancies for every unemployed. I mean, it, the it, the numbers are really quite staggering, and it's gonna get worse, of course. So that's sort of economics. You mentioned small and medium enterprises. Unlike, you know, Western countries, where United States, UK, most of economic activity occurs through SMEs, right, small and medium enterprises. In the case of Russia, it's about 20%. And that number has gone down over the years under Putinism, under the centralization of, of the political system, the economic system. And that's only going to get worse in this era of repression we've seen with these nationalizations. Uh, right? We just saw Danone and Carlsberg effectively expropriated and handed to, to friends.
0: Uh, of Kamz and Kadirov, no less, which is extra funny. Well, his nephew,
1: in particular, so you know, if you want it, it's not what you know; it's who you know. And the, that's the definition of it. And Kavalcuk's, uh, so you know, Putin's lifelong uh, good friend. He's got a nice little gift, uh, early Christmas came. So, so yeah. I mean, but these types of decisions, this, these, this does not, of course. I mean, if you're uh, a small business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an investor. These things aren't the types of things you want to see that gives you confidence in, oh, I can, you know, build up a nice business here and there will be no political repercussions and potentially expand the business, etc. So devastating, of course. And it's just going to get worse. You've lost your export markets. Imports are much more expensive. The ruble doesn't have any opportunity to improve so that, you know, drives up costs of doing business. Uh, So all these things just getting more and more problematic over
0: time. Yeah, currently I think they're propping up the ruble by selling yuan massively to create a kind of a fl- flood their economy with yuans. Uh, again, this time with China comes in because a lot of Russian side thinks that their future is tied with, with China, and when Xi Jinping arrived in, in, in Moscow, that was kind of funny. They even made like a, a children's drawing contest about Russia's glorious future with China and all this whatnot. Uh, so, so again, we have to look at the, these guys here. What is their endgame? They only work for their interests themselves, but what does China really want in, in Russia, and how do they view this?
1: Uh, look at the end of the day they want a fellow ally that's standing up against the Western order right so so the, and they have that obviously but there is some divergence right I mean China wants to reform in its own interests in its own way the existing globalization period that obviously the United States sort of inaugurated late 80s early 90s and now they want to just sort of reform that system. Russia is obviously out to actually detonate it, right? We're trying to blow it up and start something new. China's not on board with that. China uh, arguably is uh, the greatest beneficiary of, of globalization for the last 30 years. So th- there's major point of divergence. China, look, they're not gonna try to save Russia. They had every opportunity if they wanted to financially in defense sector. When you mentioned the, the summit in Moscow, Russia was dying for an agreement to build another gas pipeline into into China. China showed next to no interest, right? Asking for loans, more, more financial support, China showing no interest, right? So the major areas where they could, could have been helping any day of any week, at any point in the last year and a half, and they have decided not to in the in the major areas that, that Russia needs assistance. So that tells you what you need to know. Uh, and, and look, at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the figures, The amount that China trades with Russia relative to what it trades with the Western world, right, imports and exports with the EU and the United States combined. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. I mean, there's nothing to even discuss. The United States and Europe, simply the growth in trade in 2022 compared to 2021, the growth in trade between the Western world and China is larger than the entire trade relationship with all the growth that China and Russia have enjoyed recently. That mere growth is larger than the entire in absolute terms trade relationship between Russia and China this is a matter of national security for China to maintain those economic linkages with the West and so they're not going to let Russia of course get in the way of that so they keep on sort of treading this fine line sort of you know staying on the fence more or less and give some political rhetoric rhetorical support where 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 they can but of course never supporting too much to anger the West too much. So and that's going to continue going forward.
0: Yeah the big question obviously economy-wise is the grain deal these days that has been disrupted it's been you know cut off a lot of people are super happy about it in Russia as i read these people who probably don't understand how economy works very well though but uh, some people are really happy about this some people say Russia should have joined it and uh, I watched the summit was like 20 million grain tons of grain sent to Africa which is like less than 1% that they receive in exports like what's going to happen with that because it's going to be even more political instability as we see like in Sri Lanka these days in Pakistan and Lebanon too and now we have uh, things in Niger other places I'm really worried about the next decade and I really want some stability in the world and I don't know how how is the grain deal impact all this situation which is already worsening on the planet
1: right well I mean the grain deal this depends upon one if Russia comes back back to the deal which I suspect they don't Uh, I'll get into that in a second Uh, and then two of course this has to do with the duration of the war what type of ceasefire peace terms we come to at some point Uh, but I don't think this is sustainable say five years down the road right so I, I do see this more as this will be highly disruptive I think as long as I do tend to think this will be in place for the duration of the war I say that with mild confidence. I think there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. It's hard to know exactly. I also think I think it's an important point as to why this happened. Right. I mean, for the previous year, Russia had had abided by this deal. Right. Most of the world benefited. And also critically, I think the point was they were keeping this deal in place. so They could appease to the global south. They could sort of try to create this you know, alternative block against the Western order. Right, So I think they, they deferred to those international political interests to try to, you know, in a way, almost create that, like we saw in the Cold War, this non-aligned bloc or this bloc that goes with China and Russia, etc. I think that's what's actually potentially happening now is that Russia's domestic political needs are superseding those international political interests. I don't think it's coincidence that they decided to leave this deal one month after having the biggest threat to political stability in the country after this Pergozian mutiny right I tend to think what's actually going on here is more about appealing to these as you mentioned right these far right pro-war the angry patriots right
0: angry patriots is a trademark of my, my company I uh, trademarked this in, in the yeah. EU I yeah. I have mentioned yeah. this in some places yes. but you have like when oh. when Girkin started this I blatantly stole his logo and names and went to some of my lawyers so um, you are always free to use this but. Yes, it,
1: I'll, 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 quote, I'll cite you in the future
0: It's not after you, because you're, you're on our side
1: I just did this so that they can't have any cells in the EU Just just to cheer you up a bit Very good, very good Doing your part, I like it Yeah. But I think this is what's going on here I, and, and you have to think, this is the same week When left the grain deal Within two or three days that Gherkin right, Was arrested So I think that's actually, I mean, reading between the lines here Not knowing everything behind the scenes You can never quite know But I mean, these are pretty monumental shifts in policy and they happened within less than a week of each other and so I, I tend to think they're they're actually related i think putin on the one hand was appeasing to all of these angry patriots who've been saying since the beginning of the war why are we allowing the ukrainian economy to continue to export to I be mean, if we're at war with this country we're at war with this country let's take it down right and so keeping that grain deal keeping that you know lifeblood for the economy alive it makes sense from a strategic point of view so i think on the one hand he decided let's end the grain deal and, and appease them but remind them now there's no more criticism right unquestioned loyalty i'm demanding no more criticism of the war and gherkins arrested so anger them on the one hand appease them on the other and hopefully he can sort of politically maneuver his way through this one i have a question by
0: the way we should ask to all americans that i've seen this side of the Atlantic ocean because I've been into trouble and argued with a lot of people. And why do you think so many Americans are still very pro-Putin, in a way? Because that's, that's, that's the thing that I ask to all Americans in general, because I speak to a lot of you, and, well, I have gotten into some conflicts, and they, they truly seem that there's something wrong with this whole thing. Where's the love from Putin coming from? And this is to you as an American, as an, as an intelligent American who understands the situation. What do you think is going on here?
1: Um, whew, a couple of things. Uh, one, Americans have always had a... Uh a certain reverence for, I guess, resolving problems with bravado, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we are an immigrant nation of settlers. Take matters at your own hand, take control, take responsibility, be the big man, be the tough guy. So I think some of that resonates with Putin. Also, Putin, at least ostensibly claiming traditional values and family, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, a lot of those themes resonate with the American public, the American right in particular. I think there's a lot of that going on. there. And there's, there's also this, sort of this almost admiration for knowing Putin is kind of, prior to the war at least, right, the little guy, and he actually has the guts, has the bravado to stand up and and yell at the big guy on the block over and over and over and not care and kind of get away with it, right? I think there's sort of this, yeah.
0: To my perspective, I'm a Latvian. Yeah, to us
1: Putin, was never the little guy. He's like the big guy yeah. in the black over here. Yeah, you know. Right. From Washington, D.C., that's not the, you know, half world away, uh, you know, with <laughs> a, a, an economy, several multiples, uh, larger. It's kind of like, and, and by the way, what's there to take really serious? Because from the American point of view, the American rights point of view, we already did this before. We won the Cold War, right? Reagan already took you guys down. By their vision, I'm not describing how I view things. But Reagan already took you guys down, so you guys can kind of say and do whatever you want 20, 25, 30 years later. The the game has already played out and we won, right? (laughs) Yeah, well
0: that's an interesting point because like uh, Reagan still has a lot of reverence here in, in Eastern Europe and, and a lot of out of these things for example uh, John McCain has a street name after him here in Kiev because John McCain was like felt one of these things so
1: it's not always like that we kind of like Americans here you might be surprised well you, you might have noticed no, no, at this no, no. point I'm, I'm aware and I've spent a good amount of time in Poland so there's reverence there as well but uh, yeah
0: the thing is about uh, your, I want to talk about your business because uh, we're gonna have to wrap up but only because my battery is about to die here <laughs> that's the only reason when I'll come back to Kiev I'll definitely want to talk to you again though. But I have a question like what's your business going to do? What's your plan? Like to build a business you must have a plan. What are you going
1: to do here? What's your goal? Do you want to achieve? The goal is very simple. I mean I want to be a part of rebuilding this country. Attracting money and and jobs back into this, this nation. I mean obviously I deeply believe in the, what the country is fighting for. And so I, I wanna be a part of that. I, I feel I'm well-placed to be a part of that, that, having dedicated my academic, professional life to to this region, basically since, I mean, even going back to university, you know, my college degree, my graduate degree, uh, et cetera. So that, I mean, just, this is deeply personal, to be perfectly honest. So, and then it happens to mold very well with my professional skills, abilities, my, my experience. So basically the business in in short, uh, again, called Ukraine Business Network, uh, co-founded it with my my business partner, Andrew Prima, who runs Ukraine Business News here and has been for several years, which is a well-known journalist outlet here in in Ukraine. The idea is to, I mean, ultimately provide this sort of one-stop shop for Western corporations who either are in the country currently or coming to the country to understand their external environment, to understand the political situation, the outlook for the war, uh, to understand also just execution on the ground. Who do you work with? Negotiations with retailers. And then getting into very nitty-gritty execution of doing pricing, right, uh, with, with retailers and working with distributors and picking distributors that you work with. Where do you work in the country? How do you segment your customers, et cetera, et cetera. And getting so really into the nitty-gritty of best practices and execution on the ground and the idea being helping these companies then make the case to corporate right whether you know corporates in Germany or UK or United States of why this is such an attractive investment destination and to be giving you know more money to create those jobs and to 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 drive growth uh, in Ukraine because this is how the country gets out of the war it needs that Western money to to develop
0: well I think you'll definitely succeed we're gonna talk once again well but when I get back because I'll be on the front lines reporting trip I'm gonna let you know how it goes from there as well but uh before we finish this one like I said very last question here what's something you like to give out to like my audience is mostly um, in California Texas and, and the East Coast so all these interesting people and again mostly in the United States from here in Kiev what's the number one thing you want people in the United States to know about Ukraine
1: what should they know about Ukraine? Wow. I mean, look, the cliche thing is the resilience. That's what inspired me being here in May. And, and there's a lot of myths. You, you see on the headlines that you know, the country's at war and people have this impression that you know they're walking down the streets of Kiev and there's hand-to-hand combat everywhere and grenades <laughs> blowing up or something. And you've been here long enough to know that's, that's not the case. But that said, I mean, I read a stat, over 80% of Ukrainians report knowing somebody well who has been Either killed on the front lines or has been severely wounded. I mean, the war is just ever present; it's omnipresent in everybody's mind. And also, these people are fighting. For the, I, I get questions from clients if they're not in Ukraine. Say, what's going to happen in the next three months, six months? When's the war going to end, etc. I'm on the ground here. Everybody's asking, where are we in three years from now? Where are we in six years from now? Is my 12-year-old child is he going to be fighting in Russia in 10 years? Right. So much more. I mean, this is existential. Right. So, I mean, it's just honestly just a a beautiful feeling being here of just the strength, the determination, the resilience stories of altruism. I'm I'm sure you've heard them, too, of people just doing things with and for each other just because everybody understands they're in this together. And and I think, I mean, if you want to give a message back to Americans, I mean, I come from the U.S., right? I'm, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. Right. It's really inspiring and amazing to see, I mean, particularly in the U.S., with our social extreme social divisions. It's incredible to see a society actually coming together really strongly and critically coming together for these values, for these virtues, right? These liberal ideas of, you know, obviously democracy and self determination, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just beautiful. And honestly, that's what's inspired me to completely alter my career, quit my job, start this business here, and uh, do what I can for the, you know, the reconstruction.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. And I can understand you because this is also the reason why I come here for the fourth time at this point to report. I will definitely meet up once again. Uh, And again, today we are disturbed because we arrived yesterday morning, didn't check our batteries, and we're we're a bit poor on equipment. But we'll manage. And uh, as I always say, happiness is mandatory. Thank you, Mark.
2: Very good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory.